I don't think it's as simple as saying that you just need to learn how to live below your means. I think the challenge that a lot of people have is learning how to live below your means and enjoy it. That's what actually makes it sustainable. That's what actually enables you to accomplish so many of the financial goals that you're looking to accomplish. Merry Christmas, Hannah, Kwanzaa to everyone who celebrates whatever. Kwanzaa. Happy Kwanzaa. Merry Christmas, Kwanzaa. <laughs> Welcome to the Rich and Regular Podcast, where we explore life at the intersection of money. I'm Julian. And I'm Kirsten. And today we are telling the story of how we gave ourselves the greatest gift of all, aka how we paid off $200,000 of debt. Oh, I thought we were talking years. about kids. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> how we made a baby. <laughs> But first, as usual, I want to give a shout out to Rocket Tech Girl, who left us a five-star review that said, love your podcast, so helpful, love the dialogue chemistry you have with each other, faithful listener. Oh, I appreciate that. I got to get some uh, organ sound effects, because there are a lot of like church language that's oftentimes like used in these reviews, and I always want to play like a good church organ. I'm more interested in how people come up with their usernames. Rocket oh. Tech Girl is amazing. It makes me think you work at SpaceX she or like you're an does. astronaut or something. She probably does. <laughs> All right. So let's dive in. So long story short, we paid off $200,000 of debt over a five-year period. And about two and a half years of that was when we were dating and not living together and not sharing accounts. And then another two and a half years of that was when we were engaged, moved in together, and eventually combined accounts. So we're going to try to cover both experiences. But I think the reason that we're talking about this is because, one, I don't think we've ever talked about this before. I don't think we've ever talked about it in a consolidated way. Yeah. I mean, so we, you know, we've done podcasts. And those kinds of things. Um, we we talk about it in depth in our book uh, to a certain extent. I, I would love to say that everyone that listens to the podcast read the book. If you haven't, shame on you. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think it's also good for us as well. I'm going to let you finish because I have some thoughts on on yeah. this this topic. But go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying like you could piece it together from all of the podcast interviews, the book, yeah. even the episodes we've done on here. You could piece it together, but we've never packaged it up. And I think it's partially because when people ask us how we did it, the answer seems fairly straightforward. And personally, we just like to talk about why we did it more than how we did it. Mm -hmm. But I also understand where people are at right now. And I understand what the brain does when you are lost in the sauce. And I think that's where a lot of people are right now when it comes to debt, especially because student loans have restarted. And once they restarted after that long hiatus, it kind of knocked the wind out of people. Even if it's not student loans, there are a lot of people who are just struggling with consumer debt and paying for, still paying for the high inflation and the summer of fun. But whenever the brain feels like it has identified a danger or that it senses some threat, something like, oh my God, I owe a bunch of people a bunch of money, it reacts accordingly. Yeah. It starts screaming at you and it can leave you in the state of avoidance or even confusion. And when you can't see a way out, you really start to project how you feel right now, the stress that you feel right now. You project yeah. that into this imminent future. And that's what causes apathy and hopelessness. And 
sometimes I just want to, I want to hug people and say, baby, this is a stress response. This is not indicative of your debt. This is not indicative of the choices that you made. You need to breathe through it first, and then we can tackle some solutions. But as long as you're in this state of unrest, your brain is going to be in protection mode. Like there's a tiger coming after you, (laughs) like, like when we were cavemen versus like, oh, this is just a math problem. Let's figure out the pieces. Yeah, I um I do not I completely agree with you and I'm, and I there are a couple of things that that like really made me think about this um a little differently. I think a couple of things one if you're hearing or listening to Kirsten talk about the brain and you're thinking that she is over intellectualizing, you know, this issue, uh, she's not. Um, there's a saying, I think it's Jim Dahl. And the only reason why I can think of it is because we just finished reading J.L. Collins book. And I want to say he opens his book by quoting Jim, who leads a white coat investor. And he has this really great saying where he was talking about money being like oxygen. And it's like when you have enough of it, you don't really think about it. When you don't have enough of it, it's all you think about. And I think that's kind of what you are referring to. Uh, and I've heard that in so many different versions over the years. And I, I completely agree, which is actually one of the first things that I thought about when you were speaking is because I think if I'm being honest, maybe you don't think this way. The reason we haven't really spoken about it in depth and certainly in a long time is because we are admittedly a bit removed from it. If I'm being honest, I haven't really thought about it. You know, I mean, especially when it comes to student loan debt, really, um, I really feel for the people who are just their lives are really being shaped by overwhelming student loan debt. I'm not saying it wasn't an issue when I was in college. It was, but I had some hacks. And I think we'll talk about that a little later on in this episode. One of the things that I did to help minimize or at least manage that debt before ultimately paying it off. But, but yeah, I think it's really, really good to kind of go back and think about what that journey felt like, what we tactically did, um, how it might differ from some of the other debt payoff stories that you may have heard out there in the past. But ultimately it's really about meeting people where they are, meeting listeners and now viewers on YouTube where they are right now, which is in a situation where like paying off debt is a top priority. And I can ground that in a little bit of research. There was a survey conducted by bankrate.com and it shows that 63% of Americans do not see their financial situations improving in 2024, which is a slight improvement over last year's, which was around 66%. Uh, when you dig a little bit deeper into that study, it shows that most Americans have financial goals for 2024. No big surprise. 86% of them have at least one. And the top most common financial goal is debt payoff, right? Um, I am also a part of a group, a really cool group on Facebook called Afros on Fire. Someone asked that question. And and, and again, I was scanning through some of the responses and let's just say the responses there were indicative of this bank rate survey, which looked at the broader set of Americans' priorities. So all that to say, debt payoff is top of mind for a lot of people. And so that's part of the reason why we're talking about it. In that article, it also says that paying down debt was actually one of the most commonly cited financial goals in the past three years. So obviously this has been an issue and there are several reasons for that, right? I mean, you've got the rise of credit card debts, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, There's HELOCs, which I always think about HELOCs as one of those economic indicators that you really want to pay attention to because it's like people searching other pockets, other ways to get access to money to help keep themselves afloat. But if that wasn't bad enough, you also have like really, really record high mortgage rates, which a lot of people are feeling the pain about. And so all of that to say debt is top of mind. I think it's weighing on a lot of people's hearts. 
Um, but we also had to do our part. And, you know, I'm a little bit more comfortable being the bad cop, if you will. Um, and I'm also in the thick of fatherhood right now. But it, it also reminds me of like our son in Candy, right? It's like, oh, you've got this casual relationship with Candy and you don't mind popping a Starburst here and eating, you know, a Laffy Taffy there. It's all fine and good until you get that first deep cleaning. <laughs> He hasn't cavities. really, he's not had a terrible experience at the dentist yet. And I think that's what a lot of people are dealing with right now, right? This onslaught of APRs and student loan debt. It almost feels like just gruesome, deep cleaning at the dentist that, you know, has been building up over the years because people have not really been able to manage their debt accordingly. And so it's time to pay the piper and it does not, doesn't feel good. Yeah. You know, I said it at the top of the episode, at the end of the day, this is just a math problem. But one of the reasons people can't just jump in and figure it out is because debt payoff advice is not one size fits all. At the end of the day, debt is stigmatized. And depending on what kind you have and whether it worked out in hindsight depends on the type of advice that you get. Mortgages are debt. And after 30 years, the average family is going to pay way more in interest because of the amortization schedule than the sticker price suggests. But we call that good debt. We don't look at how much of the house you paid for versus interest. HELOCs aren't necessarily viewed as irresponsible, but credit cards are, even though they're both lines of credit. And even with credit cards, if you listen to any entrepreneur tell their story about how they bootstrapped their business, if they mentioned that they were funding it from Amex, nobody says, oh, that was a bad personal finance decision because it worked out in the end. So it it really just depends on, on what kind of debt that you have versus how you feel about it and how willing and optimistic you are in your ability to tackle it. Now, my debt that I had at the time that we were paying this off was primarily consumer debt and not the not the good kind. It was debt from driving an expensive car, buying really nice clothes and shoes, eating and drinking way above my pay grade. And I felt a lot of shame about it when I actually got down to like, what did I spend this money on? Why am I still paying for it? And so my first step was to identify that it was shame that was both driving my actions and inactions and to make peace with my decisions instead of judging myself for them. So I think depending on the type of debt you have, your first step is going to be different. If you are dealing with the kind of debt that causes you shame or regret or this feeling bad about yourself or judging yourself, your first step is going to be to deal with that. If you start jumping right into action, you're just going to, you're going to, you're going to have to address it at some point. So you might as well Start there. Yeah, I would say to that, uh, one, I remember those days uh, in some of those awkward conversations very clearly. But I will also say with respect to shame, that is not something that is tied directly to consumer debt. There are people that I think feel shame for all of it. There are some people yeah. who regret the home that they purchased. There's certainly people who regret going back to school or the school of choice or the major of choice. And so to your point, around shame. Like it's, it's one of those things that to each his own, some people feel it about these things. Some people feel it about all things, but either way, it's definitely an obstacle that a lot of people have to deal with. I uh, fortunately did not have the problem uh, that you had with respect to consumer debt. I had other versions of debt. And so I'd certainly had a car note and it wasn't a luxury car, but you know, I didn't have enough money. I had to take out a loan. And so as a result, I needed to pay off that car loan. Uh, I had tax debt because there were years where uh, I just didn't make enough money. I couldn't afford to pay my taxes. I was going to school while waiting tables at night while also working at the school. Like, I mean, a true Jamaican. I had all the jobs doing everything that I needed to do to get by. Uh, and they were, you know, I had to set up a payment plan with the IRS. Um, and I had some student loan debt. And, and again, I was able to minimize that 
um, because during my graduate school experience, I worked at the school, which basically gave me the benefit of being able to go to school at a discount, basically at employee rate. And so if anybody out there, that's certainly an option for you. Like, I don't think we think about that enough. Like, you want to be able to go to that school? One of the hacks is be able to work at the school, see if they have some type of employee benefit, and then use that benefit to essentially get a free education. But all of that to say, when it came down to managing the debt, I think like anything else, it starts with a plan. And at the time, it was really a matter of thinking about how I could leverage so many of the skills that I was learning while I was earning my MBA and running a business, and then kind of thinking about my life, my financial life, as a business. I was a CEO of my life. I had to make these CEO, CFO, all of us are. And so I had to really stop and think about, well, how do I outline and first understand everything that I owe? And that's exactly what I did. And so it starts with, this is who I owe. This is when these bills are due. This is how much I can send to this entity. Uh, And you're looking at all of those things, consolidating them, thinking about the percentage of money that every single month that is coming from your take home pay and going towards your debt payoff. Um, I followed, I believe it was the snowball method, uh, just as a matter of preference, but also because I think I was fresh out of graduate school and I was thinking about it from a corporate finance standpoint. I know a lot of people have a preference for the avalanche method for psychological reasons. I don't really care which one you choose. To me, ultimately, it's a matter of whichever one you think is best suited for you to ultimately get it done. But between spreadsheets that I developed, um, and these were not fancy spreadsheets, by the way, they were just like, this, these are all the bills I got to pay. And every single month, I would just go in there and type in exactly how much money was going out relative to what was coming in. Simple kind of budgeting exercise. And I did the same thing for the debt payoff. Um, I will also say that might have been the last time I even saw a yellow legal pad. I had a thing. I don't know if you remember. I had a thing. I think part of it was just because I just happened to have a stack of them. And so I had it. And so I used it. But to me, there was something about that old school yellow legal pad that felt so legitimately kind of like business and financing. Yeah. Yeah, It was like, it felt legal. (laughs) It felt like this was a legal contract. And so whatever I'm writing down here. um, Yeah. You didn't put your grocery list on a legal pad. That was was for planning. No, that was for you using your brain (laughs) and using the legal pad. This is not regular paper. This is like a commitment paper. But um, I, I had that in addition to, like I said, the spreadsheets. And, you know, one of the things that I really think helped me was to look at the payoff period and to really be mindful of that. And so you can look at how much money you have that's going towards your debt payoffs, almost like creating your own consolidated loan, if you will. But like, this is all the money that's going towards debt. This is how much disposable income I have. And as a result, you can see how much of that money is going towards paying off the debt. But I think the other part was saying, but what if, right? What if I had Two hundred more dollars. Uh, granted, you may not literally have two hundred more dollars, but I think it's important to think about. Well, if you did have two hundred more dollars, if you did have five hundred more dollars, and then you can see and quantify. Well, that means this payoff period would go from ten months to six months, or this would go from three years to two and a half years, and so on. And I think when you understand that, it helps to drive your motivations. And I think it helps, at least it helped me to stay motivated. Um, and then underneath all of that, this was, I think, me just being a little extra because I was reading a lot of self-help books. But I took it a step further and started writing out, like I used to have a personal tagline, which was prepare, focus, do it. 
Um, and it was simple. It was just like, look, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter how big the mountain is. You prepare for it, you focus on getting it done, and then you just you just buckle down and you do it. And that was like the tagline to every every email that I ever sent. <laughs> um, I had a mission statement. I had a vision statement. All these things. And, and I think what I was going through at the time was just a matter of defining who I wanted to be, writing it down, because there's so much research on the effect of writing down goals and the role that that plays in you ultimately getting it done. And I think building this deep sense of integrity that you have in yourself, like your word becomes your bond when you write it down, you're committing to it. It's hard to look at that and ignore it relative to like having never written it down, especially if it's not on the legal paper. And then you just kind of feel like, nah, man, I wrote this down. Like I have to do this. This is who I said I was. And so that I think is the first step. I think it starts with planning, but I do think you need to underpin that with some deep psychological work to figure out who you are, who you want to be. And for me, it was, um, it was kind of tackling myself and treating myself like a business and running my home like an operation. Yeah. So, so as you guys can see, we had two different first steps after I addressed the shame that came from the decisions that I had made in my past. I moved on to that step and I tried to strategically come up with a plan. To your point, I was researching all of the ideologies and methodologies and frameworks around debt and I was able to create the spreadsheets and the legal pads and all of that stuff. But instead of feeling accomplished after doing all of that or relieved after doing all of that, I struggled with commitment dread because I knew that this was not going to happen overnight. I knew it wasn't going to be quick and I knew that it would require sacrifice. And so I was starting to dread the idea of committing to this. And like for me, housing was my big expense. It was my largest expense. And after I did the math, it was very clear that I needed to move. And so it made sense to break my lease and move somewhere that was much more affordable. And I went from like 1,200 square feet in Midtown to like a 600 square feet box in Sandy Springs, which is a suburb way outside of Atlanta. And it was a huge blow to the ego and it was a self-inflicted wound. So it was like a double whammy. And on top of that, I am Black American through and through. I, you know, my fourth generation Texan, like I'm a Black American. And the way that credit had been explained to me was that it was a reward for good decisions. Financial literacy was basically my ability to just pay bills on time so that I could keep getting more lines of credit and extended credit limit increases. And so those were the signs that I was doing the right things. And when I went back and now tried to Re rearrange my brain to see it as something that needed to be minimized. It was, it was a weird process for me. And so I had to build my conviction about the role that debt played in my life from the ground up. And then from there, I could start to measure the integrity that I had with my word. And the way that I did that was I really started from the basics and started learning how capitalism works and studying the origins of consumerism and all of the ways that American culture reinforces my role as a consumer, which led me to a lot of work about minimalism. That's how internet rabbit holes work. Like you start one place and then you end up way over here in in this lifestyle. That's probably how you discovered rich and reckless, <laughs> if I'm being honest. So I started, I started looking at consumerism, capitalism, minimalism. And while I decided ultimately that I'm not a minimalist, learning from that community and pairing it with all of this historical data helped me really form a point of view about why I spent so much money 
and that I wasn't a bad person. I was just influenced by bad systems. And I just remember telling myself over and over again that it may not be my fault, but it is my responsibility. And I need to go through that same process that Julian just described and figure out what's valuable to me, figure out where I want to spend my money, figure out that I want to be an investor versus a consumer and decide on these things and then build that conviction and commitment over time. You know, when you said um, you mentioned something about you being from Texas, I thought you were making a reference to the size of your home, because that's that's that is also something that is very, very Texan. So. And so I would imagine there was a bit of a uh, shock to the ego or the identity to make the transition from a larger home to a smaller home, but the in a different neighborhood. Because for this, sure, if, for those who are from Georgia, this wasn't the Sandy Springs you know today. This was like. <laughs> This was it wasn't like, that. It wasn't bad. It, you didn't live in the hood. It was. It was. It was Sandy Springs. It's still a nice neighborhood. It was I nice. Did not time. the amenities of no like, restaurants and no. nightlife, and you know, it wasn't that. Yeah, I, re- I. I don't even remember those days. This is how long ago it feels. I don't know how long you were there, uh, but yeah, I remember it being there. It came in pretty handy because it was not that yeah, far. It was close to work uh, from the job, and so to next your, to a McDonald's. To your point about the ripple, ripple effect, right? It wasn't just a matter of you saving on rent. There was also there was some there were some conveniences lost, and there were some conveniences gained. But the other thing that you mentioned that it really made me think about was credit. And I obviously was raised in a completely different environment, completely different culture. But I also remember credit and understanding credit, feeling like the pinnacle of financial literacy. And I think what's really interesting is that even as I think about so many of the people in my family now, when we have these conversations about money because they know the work that we do and they talk about the lessons that they are passing on to their children like that's the top thing is that you have to make sure that you have good credit. And it's so, if I'm being honest, frustrating because that is such an outdated perspective on personal finance as a whole. Yes, that is an important chapter. But if you're one of those people who believe that credit is at the heart of everything with respect to personal finance, like I, I'm sorry to tell you, like there's so much more uh, and certainly so many more important factors Like you can live without credit, right? Like you can live without credit, but like you've got to understand the fundamentals of personal finance. You absolutely have to understand the fundamentals of investing. Um, but I think whenever I see that, it's just really interesting or hear that in this case, it's, it, it really kind of triggered me a little bit because it made me think about how many people are still holding on to that belief today. But I think there's also something to you know, the effect of like what happened, you know, we've briefly kind of mentioned some of the psychological benefits here. And we talk about this certainly personally quite a bit. I think this may be one of the few times where we get into a little bit more detail with respect to the role or how debt payoff psychologically affects you. And I think there were a couple of things going on there, but none more important than when you have X amount of dollars. And this is in many cases, um, the value that you've kind of placed on what you are able to produce, which is what a lot of people do. They say, I make $50,000, therefore I'm a $50,000 earner. And there's one or two things that you can do. It's like, all right, I can go try to get a job and maybe I go from 50 to $60,000. But what this process teaches you to do is that, hey, even if you got that raise and got $60,000, once you take away taxes, once you account for the subtle lifestyle inflation that always kind of finds its way into your lifestyle, um, you, you probably end up right back where you started. 
And I think when you conversely look at other ways to kind of grow the gap between how much you earn and how much you spend, debt payoff, I think, has a far more fulfilling sense of accomplishment in many ways than getting that that job. And I think what you learn about yourself and the value of those learnings last significantly longer than let's say that $10,000 raise. Every year, I think you kind of have an opportunity to think about what it is that you want to do. You may say, all right, this is the year, it's the new year. I want to go ahead and get this new certification. I'm going to make an effort to join this organization, or I'm going to be a little bit more assertive with respect to networking at the job, because I think these are the things that are going to help me go from 50 to 60 or whatever that pay bump you are envisioning looks like. And as a result, I'm going to be the one that is considered. I'm going to get the interview. But at the end of the day, like it's still up to chance, right? You've done all those things. You may have spent $5,000 hours kind of working to gain the certification, do all of those things only to ultimately leave it up to chance, which is, is this hiring manager interested in you? Do they have someone else in mind? Um, Does the budget simply not allow? And they're going to go with the candidate that is willing to take 55 instead of the 60 that you're demanding versus what we were saying before, if you took all of that energy, all of that time and said, I'm going to focus on developing some skills. And by the way, this may not necessarily be some skill that you can monetize, but paying down debt, learning how to live below your means, learning the fundamentals of finance so that you can structure your debt payoff in a way that optimizes the income that you have for the moment that you're in, that is a real life skill. And those are things that I think, regardless of the time period that you're in, have the ability to produce results for you for years to come. If I were to boil that down into one word, it's I think there's just a greater sense of empowerment that comes from debt payoff that I don't quite think comes or lasts nearly as long as the feeling that you get when you get that job. Because if we're being honest, like, let's just keep it 100. You get the job. I think most people get the job. And then they're like, God, oh, this isn't quite what I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. I cannot say that about the debt payoff without question. Like of yeah. all the things that we have accomplished and even the things that I've accomplished individually, debt payoff, I think, is probably one of the most fulfilling and emotionally, psychologically rewarding feats. It's like the championship. Yeah, like a marathon. It, it really a is. triathlon. Because you can, it, it lives with you forever. You it always does. know. You know enough about yourself. You know enough about your money. You know enough about your family, the systems that you've created to know that no matter what, this is what my quality of life is going to be. I know how to live here. And as a result, a world of opportunities open up to you versus those who haven't developed those skills and are constantly chasing more. Yeah. Yeah, I think it just leads to a simpler relationship between effort and output that doesn't exist when you are constantly asking other people for permission or indebted to them. You owe them something. I want to talk a little bit about Toolkit because this is another place where I see people overcomplicating the debt payoff process. There are a number of tools that you can use or deploy in your debt payoff journey. There are credit counselors. There are financial coaches. There are, there's debt consolidation. There's balance transfers. There's all kinds of things that you can use. And of course, there are the apps. There are so many apps at this point. 
Back then, my toolkit consisted of some very simple things. I'm going to share who my toolkit was. I did use a budgeting app. I use Mint, which is going away in 2024. So find another one. I use podcasts and blogs. So just user-generated content, random people on the internet sharing their stories. I use paper and pen, and I use visuals. You talked about writing earlier. I actually read a book called Write It Down, Make It Happen, and it's probably in that bookcase over there, all wrinkled up and tattered because of how much I've used it. But I had this journal, which I used as a planner, and I actually have it right here. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see how, like... It's giving George Costanza's wallet because it's got all of this stuff stuffed in it. (laughs) Like all of these, it's got the legal paper. So, you know, I was serious. It's got, it's got everything in it. And what I would do was every time I got a paycheck, I would write down exactly where the money was going. And I would also write letters to future me to open on certain dates. I remember that. So there's actually that I wrote in November of 2013 that I told myself to open January 1st, 2014. And I plan on opening it and reading it again, January 1st, 2024, to just see how different 10 years, how I was talking to myself 10 years ago versus now. now. (laughs) You want me to read it now? Oh, it's up to you guys. (laughs) That might be embarrassing. (laughs) Maybe we'll do it as a bonus video. (laughs) But the point is, like, it was just me talking to me in this journal. And it's very simple. It did not require a bunch of apps and, like, algorithms. It was just math. Like, Here's what I have. Here's what I need to spend. Here's what I owe. And let's go from there. And then I also had visuals. Like I had visuals that I could see every day around the house that would remind me I had a debt payoff thermometer, which I would scribble on and just kind of mark progress. I had countdown calendars. I still have sticky notes all around the house right now. Like I just believed that I needed reminders everywhere. And I think the point of this is that like, look, there are a ton of budget systems and methodologies out there. The best one is the one that works for you. And that may change over time. You might outgrow the system that you started with. You might switch it because of the season of life that you're in. All of that is okay. And all of that is normal. Like as much as we joke about the legal pad being binding, it doesn't mean that you create a plan and you're stuck with it forever. It's not, it's not a marriage. It, It is a commitment, but it's not a marriage. And so you can test and trial things out until you find the one that works for you, but don't let the amount of options that are out there for you be the thing that stops you from getting started. Yeah. Um, that's fascinating because you know, I'd never journaled, but I will say as, as someone who was always written creatively, one of the things that you made me realize that I did do is I, I used to send out these notes to people. Like I used to have, I think people call them like your board of directors now. I didn't, and again, I was doing this before it was branded and called the thing. I just, just kind of felt like, man, these are the people that I, I, I refer to them as like my superheroes. Like we were all superheroes and I was a superhero in business and they were superheroes in education and whatever their respective fields were. And I just kind of felt like we all kind of came together and we all would help uplift our personal lives, our families, our communities, et cetera. And I would send out these notes and kind of lay out my plans and intentions and things that I think they needed to be thinking about because I knew that they didn't really have the interest or the capabilities, but I was like, that's fine. You don't have to worry about what's happening in this area. You can trust in me to be a resource for you guys. You keep being a hero in law and you keep being a hero in education or politics, et cetera. Um, and so, yeah, it was, I guess you could say that was almost like an annual letter, you know, like what people do over Christmas, they send out a letter with a picture and say, these are the things that I'm thinking about. So I did do a little bit of that, um, but I didn't do any 
introspective writing or anything like that. But that brings me to 2015. And this isn't really like a toolkit, but I do think that this is where we kind of stepped on the gas. And this is just the power of partnership, right? So there's the work that you were doing and the work that I was doing, and we were definitely on the same page, um, which was not always the case, right? It took us a while to kind of get on the same page and to realize the role that investing was going to play in our life and in our marriage. And um, 2015 is kind of the year that things really kind of stepped into overdrive. Um, And if we're being honest, I mean, it started the day or what, the two days after we got engaged? Like, we can talk about that really briefly. And this may not sound very romantic to people, but just imagine this. We got engaged in uh, Peru at Machu Picchu. Uh, It's somewhere on the internet, maybe on on our YouTube page and certainly on our Instagram page. But long story short, when we got back to Lima, we spent uh, that first or the next day, uh, we went and got some groceries, <laughs> brought it back to the hotel, had everything that we needed um, to just kind of snack throughout the day. And we started writing down like the plan. The like, plan. here's the plan. Like, I got to move. Listen, you're going to move. When am I moving? My lease is up in break December. Break that lease. No, I didn't break it. We waited well, until. But it was more like, you know, this is the plan. Am I going to do it? Am I not going to do it? I'm going to pay off this once we consolidate this. And that's exactly what we did. We got married and we made the plan a part of the wedding. Mm-hmm. And then the year after we renovated the home and like things really, really stepped into overdrive. Not going to share all of the details, but. To me, the toolkit in this case was the partnership and the commitment to this shared goal and what that actually looked like. And so we, when when we weren't using Mint, I think I was much more preferential to personal capital, which is yeah, now we graduated. <laughs> as Empower because there was this investing element that that particular tool, and it still does, adds to you looking at your overall health. Um We still did the spreadsheet thing, but that started to go down a little bit because at that point we were in such a rhythm about budgeting, about budgeting that we went from meeting weekly and then sort of making debt payoff decisions biweekly to quick chat here. All right, ready for dinner? (laughs) Like, let's just roll. Um, And so, again, like once it becomes muscle memory, all of the things that kind of seem stressful or even virtuous kind of fade away because at the end of the day, it's just it's just like breathing. You take a deep breath. You ready to go? You good? You good? I'm good. You clear and you keep moving forward. But I share all that uh, to say, like, there's a lot of power in just getting on the same page with your partner, which requires you to be vulnerable, which requires you to be transparent. And I think so much of what we accomplished was because of that. So much of what we're accomplishing now is because we have so much experience collaborating and working together in the past. Now, I also know that when you say things like this, they are the people who are single and then they say, oh, well, you know, that, that, that must be nice. Or <laughs> Taps me out. <laughs> how do you do that with, with, with a partner? And you're right. Like, look, when there are two people, you have two incomes, you can combine resources. It's not two cable bills. It's not two, you know, uh, whatever it is. Like it's, it's just one. Right. And so, yes, there is a compounding effect of the efficiencies, but I always remind people that that's not always the case. That's not a given. There are just as many people. And so you can very easily look at it and say, hey, well, it's easy for you to say because there are two of you. But I can tell you right now, if that were the case, then money would not be the number one reason for divorce. It is not a given by any means. And so I think if you are single, that's okay. And I hope, especially if you're looking, that you find someone that you can partner with. 
And in the interim, just continue to focus on you, continue to do the exact same thing, build those skills, build that routine, build that system so that you can speak clearly about what it is that you are committed to doing. And I think that oftentimes becomes part of the magnet that helps you attract the right kind of partner. But by no means should you write off debt payoff or even the aggressiveness of your timeline because you don't have a partner. There are plenty of people in fact, I would say most financial success stories, in my opinion, and certainly those in the media, are single people. Yeah. Single people who are doing yeah. amazing things. And so I think we need to get out of this kind of binary, low-key gender war situation that we're yeah. in, this men versus women or whatever it is. And just focus on the goal, which is being clear on what that financial goal is. And I think all of those things kind of fall to the wayside. Part of the thing that gets couples caught up is that when they consolidate and start to find those efficiencies, they also don't decide what they're going to do with the savings. Mm -hmm. You have to also decide that you're going to use those savings to pay down debt or to ramp up your investing. And then for single people, I think it's a great time to take advantage of the biggest advantage that you have, which is that there's nobody to disagree with you. It's you versus you. There's no one there saying like, nah, we still got to spend on these things. And so it is a really good time to build integrity with yourself and develop your spending and investing habits before you meet that partner. So that when you get in that partnership, you can start from the same place that we did, which is deciding how we take both of our methods and, and use them together. Yeah. Um, can I add, just add one quick thing here? And it's, it's, it's around the idea. And while it sounds like old tried and true advice, this idea of living below your means, I think that's a bit of an oversimplification. I, I don't think it's as simple as saying that you just need to learn how to live below your means. I think the challenge that a lot of people have is learning how to live below your means and enjoy it. Yes. Like that's what actually makes it sustainable. That's what actually enables you to accomplish so many of the financial goals that you're looking to accomplish downstream. Anyone can deal with a short-term degree of sacrifice if you know that at the end, you can just go back to where you were. But that's the problem, right? Like you start saving, you save $1,000 today and you spend $2,000 next month you've basically put yourself in a deeper hole yeah. than you probably were in when you started. And I think this is where skill development and lifestyle really, really starts to set the tone for what you can ultimately achieve in your life. I think you've got to, without question, learn how to live below your means, but it's just as important to learn how to enjoy that process and how to enjoy the lifestyle that you've created for yourself, because yes. otherwise it's just going to create tension in your life, whether you are single or you're married. And that's ultimately going to lead to some type of trigger, which puts you right back where you were, or in some cases worse off than when you started. Yes. And to me, that's the downside of hacks and hack culture. <laughs> hacks yeah. can definitely be helpful, but if you're unwilling or unable in some cases to change your lifestyle or how your days are structured, those benefits are going to be short lived. We did all of the things. We did all of the hacks. We cut back a lot. We didn't have cable. We didn't have the newest appliances or phones. Our old date cars. nights were at home. We drove old cars. Our vacations were road trips in those old cars, staying at mid-tier hotels that came with a discount or points. Any windfall money that we got during that period, whether it was tax returns or bonuses or even the additional paycheck that we'd get in months where there were three, all of that went towards the debt. And so there's some value in using the hacks, but we also really changed the way that we viewed our lifestyle and structured our days to support the benefits that we were trying to get. The other thing that we did, I like what you said about making sure that you love living below your means, because the other thing that we did was 
believe the research, believe the data. And the research shows that anticipation has a much stronger impact than willpower. And so we would always plan out these little like celebration milestones along the way. It could be a nice bottle of wine, or it could be a little break from the pay down grind just to take a vacation or enjoy the, the, the feeling of spending a bunch of money on something that we've been wanting for a while. So I, I say that to say, make sure that you see this as a journey with multiple finish lines and multiple ways to win instead of like nothing counts until you reach a zero balance, because that's just, that's very all or nothing thinking. And that's not going to help you in this long-term goal. Yeah. The last thing that I would say uh, with respect to this entire debt payoff process and where our mindset was is a matter of kind of preparing for some setbacks, right? So when you are in the thick of planning, we all assume that, you know, the debt payoff is just going to be like this linear. really clear, linear, you know, process. There will be no disruption to employment. Nobody's going to get sick. My car is not going to break down. Like, that's not true. Something will happen um, that makes that journey a little bumpier than you anticipated. But I do think that um, even when you're going through that process, what you realize is that, wow, man, had I not started this process earlier, I would be feeling a much greater impact of this bump in the road. Like this bump in the road might feel like a crash Mm -hmm. as opposed to, oh, well, I'm glad this is why I have an emergency fund or I'm glad I went ahead and freed up some capacity on my credit card because now I can easily solve this problem, which leads me to this other saying that I've recently found myself um, drawn to, which is that when you have a problem and you have money, you don't really have a problem, mm. right? And obviously mm. it's an oversimplification, but it is in many cases very true because if it is just that easy for you to solve the problem because you have the resource, whether that resource is an access to affordable credit or you know, because you have good credit, you now have uh, the opportunity for bonuses or whatever it is, like you've got things that you can do that you might not have had otherwise had you not built and developed those skills or those um, those habits. Um, and I can think back to several periods in our life where we had those kinds of uh, bumps in the road. And even just, you know, the one that I'm thinking of in particular, which is 2020, which most people would not consider a bump, right? Like it was a catastrophic event. 2020, obviously I'm referring to the COVID-19 um, pandemic, but we experienced that in comfort. Yeah. If we're, if I'm being honest, um, it was an exploratory experience. It was like, wow, this is weird, but we were grounded in the in in the in the fact that we knew that we were okay. We had just sold a a rental property, um, the last one. In fact, I think we sold both of them, but the very last one was just days before they actually announced the pandemic was announced, and so we had access to money. We had the comfort of being in our home. And I'm not sharing this to brag. I'm sharing this to say, when you've done the work to pay off debt, when you've built those skills, when you've built those habits, when you've built clear lines of communication with your partner, even if slash when the world seems like it's falling apart, you can do it with a degree of confidence and comfort that most people can't because they haven't done the work. And I think it's one of those unsuspecting benefits where you are able to look at a setback with this fresh perspective and say, wow, um, I didn't anticipate 
this feeling this way. And it goes back to what I was saying before, the sense of empowerment is like, wow, if I can get through that, then I imagine what else I can do, mm-hmm. right? Like imagine what else might be possible for me now that these kinds of things aren't enough to bring me down. And I think that's one of the most important, I've probably said that three times now, but it's all important. But I think that's one of the most important um, effects of having gone through this process. And I think anyone who's paid off a significant amount of debt and overcome some of those issues can attest to that yeah. to some respect. Yeah, I, I was going to end right there, but you made me think of something because we were financially comfortable and we were also emotionally stable. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason is that during this debt payoff period, we stopped treating happiness as the pinnacle emotion. That's not to say that we don't enjoy being happy, but there were plenty of moments uh, across this journey that we did not feel happy. We yeah. just, it was not uh, a necessarily happy time. And if we had assumed that we were supposed to be happy throughout the whole thing and that there weren't other emotions that would be uncovered through the process, we would have given up. We would have assumed that something was wrong. Yeah, life isn't supposed to be this way. I'm not supposed to be unhappy. But if you've been listening carefully throughout the episode, we revealed so many other emotions that we built through there, whether it's empowered or confident or hopeful or or just self-assured, those are the emotions that we that we learned the value of during that period. And those are the emotions that have carried us through all kinds of setbacks and, and disappointments. And so that's the other part of this journey. Don't go into it feeling like you're going to get this immediate dopamine release as you see the, the balances come down, because it doesn't necessarily happen that way. What you do get is room for all of these other emotions to develop and thrive. And those are the things that really form the foundation of your financial literacy and your financial freedom. I I will add one more thing, and I don't know where this is going to go, but I'm just going to riff and say, um, with respect to debt payoff, and certainly debt payoff relative to investment growth, those are two kind of periods in our lives that, you know, depending on where you are, who you are, you might experience both of those at the same time. I think I have a greater appreciation for the debt payoff process in that journey because I know it's it's a result of the work that we put in. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you think about investment, that's, yes, you planted those seeds, but after a while, like you're kind of just sitting back and saying, yeah. hey, like the market did that. I didn't do that. I, I planted the seeds for sure. But like all of the growth that you've seen is not necessarily a reflection of your intellect or your hard work or any of those things. It might be a reflection of your discipline, assuming you are exercising that. But I think that's that's something that I don't think a lot of people come to appreciate until they get there, until they get to that point. And, and I'm sharing it because I think so many people think about this process as it beginning with that payoff. And once they're done with this drudgery, then they can get to the fun stuff. I'm, I'm telling you from personal experience, this is the fun stuff. Right. Right. Like, yes, it is wonderful to see more money in your account, more money in your investment process, but I'm willing to bet the level of pride and empowerment that you feel in yourself right now will likely not be as high unless you do something like start a business and that business goes gangbusters. You're not going to get that feeling from investment growth because those are just numbers on a screen. It has very little to do, I think, with your self-worth or fulfillment fulfillment at all. Because yeah. like you didn't do anything. You just woke up and you saw it. And it's a nice surprise. 
but like it's like if you if you woke up and there was a a, a championship ring on the nightstand versus if you knew that you hey, actually played you've in been that putting game. in the work and played in the game and like wow man I scored twenty five points last night man I, I I did my part to help put that rafter you know to put that that banner in the rafter like that's what it feels like right so yeah. when you put in the work like you have a much greater level of appreciation for the result versus what you might experience with um, with investment growth. Mm. All right, man, we could keep going because I'm like, that should be, <laughs> I'm not going to get on my soapbox, but I think we've covered the how and the why. And I hope that we've left you with just a little more hope. I hope this was a pep talk and not another you know, reason to beat yourself up. So if you like what you heard, you can let us know by leaving a five-star rating and review or drop a comment below. We'd love to keep the conversation going and we will see y'all next week.